Several years ago, Ian Murray wrote a lucid account of the revivalism of the 18th and 19th centuries. The title of his book is Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism. In his work, he distinguishes between the genuine revival of the First Great Awakening here in America and the more revivalism that marked the Second Great Awakening in America. In other words, in his book, he notes that the First Great Awakening was, was genuine, whereas the Second was marked more by a various means that were used to produce or generate revival. Hence the word revivalism. He traces through a historic uh, analysis the efforts of those in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, to those in modern day evangelical churches where they sought to use means to produce conversions. In other words, revivalism is man's effort to create revival. Whereas revival is spirit-brought, spirit-wrought, you could say. It's brought about by the Holy Spirit in converting a large group of people in one particular place. In the Second Great Awakening, Christians, wanting to generate a revival, gave themselves to means in order to produce revival. Therefore, as these, these methods, if they were, these means were passed on from one generation to the next, the emphasis became more upon producing a decision than a disciple. The emphasis on these protracted meetings and camp meetings and revival meetings was that people would make a decision for Jesus rather than make disciples of Jesus. Murray observes in his historical analysis that in the great Second Great Awakening, there was the beginning of the use of what is now called the altar call. He writes, nobody at first claimed to regard it as a means of conversion, but very soon and inevitably answering the call to the altar came to be confused with being converted. People heard preachers plead for them to come forward with the same urgency with which they pleaded for them to repent and believe. Now, as we think about this practice among ourselves today, as we think about its use among evangelicals, the question I want us to consider in our text this morning is what is the finish line for the church? What is the goal of evangelism? What is the goal of global missions? Is it merely to have someone make a decision for Jesus? To make a profession of faith in Christ and therefore be baptized? Or is it to teach them how to follow Christ? In other words, is our emphasis, is our goalpost decisions or disciples? Well, what does the Bible say? 
My hope this morning is to show you through the scriptures that the goal of gospel ministry, the goal of biblical ministry is maturity in Christ, not merely a decision for Christ. We, we need to make a decision for Jesus. We, we need to repent and believe, but that is not the finish line. Maturity in Christ is the finish line. And frankly, no ACP report from the SBC in Nashville can measure maturity in Christ. No, no statistic can be done in order to measure adequately maturity in Christ. I think a better metric for a church's health, well, how many of them actually made it to the end? How many died in faith, more so than how many professed faith? This is the goal of the apostle we'll see this morning. Now, just to remind us where we've been, Paul has just concluded here in this, in this uh, chapter a really quite large section discussing the new creation in Christ and inviting the Colossians into this new creation. He's, he said that we are a new creation and, and we have a a new Adam, and he's the creator. His name is Jesus, and he, he created the old creation, and he's creating a new creation. And here, as he shifts from this grand Christology and this grand prayer of thanks, thanking God for this congregation and for Christ and for the reconciliation that we receive in the gospel, he now goes in the letter to introduce himself. To say hi. You will be reminded that the Apostle Paul has never met anyone from this church except for the pastor. His name is Epaphras. And Epaphras has traveled to Rome to meet with the Apostle Paul while Paul is imprisoned. And Epaphras shares with him about this congregation. And, and so Paul here in this letter turns to introduce himself. Now, you'll be reminded that Epaphras has gone to Paul because there is a number of problems in the church. Namely, there has been false teachers that have crept in and begin to draw them away from the gospel. You might wonder, well, what's the main idea of Paul's letter? Well, if you have your Bibles open, just look here at Colossians chapter 2. I emphasize this on... Wednesday night, and I just want to emphasize it again to you this morning, because this is the key to understanding the polemics of Paul. In chapter 2, in verse 23, he concludes this chapter by saying, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. What is he talking about? He's talking about the false teachings Particularly the kind of activity that the false teachers wanted them to participate in. He says they indeed have, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, the primary goal of the false teachers was to make a mature Christian. You might say, well, that's a wonderful goal. The problem was the means by which they used to generate a believer. That was the problem. 
They were not using the means of God's grace, i.e. the gospel, in order to generate maturity. And what Paul here, in introducing himself, does is he says, listen... As they were facing mounting pressure, Paul defends not only himself, but his ministry against those who are masquerading as biblical teachers by pointing himself as a true teacher of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. That Paul's suffering for the church and his call to service worked against the false teachers and their position of authority. In other words, just as I argued four weeks ago, five weeks ago, that this letter is authoritative because it comes from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was set apart by Jesus on the road to Damascus to be an authoritative messenger of Jesus, such that if Paul spoke, Jesus spoke. And you can go back and read of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, and you'll see that he was given authority as the suffering servant to the church, to the Gentiles. And he was to represent King Jesus. It would be the apostle of affliction who would rise above and prove to be the authoritative messenger of the mystery of the gospel. And this is the point I want us to drive home this morning. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you've not done so already, we're going to be in verses 24 through 29 this morning. This paragraph here before us. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Here's Paul's point. This is the point I want us to consider this morning. That Christians have been given the task of serving Christ by sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, the church. That as Christians, Paul is modeling for us not merely a super apostle Not merely an apostolic position, but rather modeling for us what the ordinary Christian is to be about. And that is sacrifice and service in the life of the church. That the church is not an addendum to the gospel, but we see that the church is central to the gospel message. You have no church apart from the gospel, and you have no gospel purpose apart from 
the church. They go together. They're not in competition with one another. The church is the central idea, the central vehicle by which God is delivering the message of reconciliation to the world. And if that is the means by which God has chosen, then we ought as Christians to see it as central. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is worth dying for. That the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is is worth suffering for and sacrificing for. And so this morning I want us to consider and encourage us to participate in service of Christ by participating in the building up of the body of Christ. That if you claim the name of Christ this morning, but want nothing to do with this church, then you are confused about what it means to follow Christ. Paul outlines in our passage this morning two tasks, two tasks that we're going to consider of the Christian regarding the life of the local church. Paul here in this passage is talking about the church and about his service to the church, about his suffering for the church. And so this morning, I I want you to, if you take notes, there's two points. Number one, Christians suffer for the sake of the church. Number two, Christians serve for the health of the church. That we ought to suffer for the sake of the church, and we ought to serve for the health of the church. Now, before we get into this, I I want to define the church. This is a wonderful sanctuary. This is a wonderful building. God has tremendously blessed this congregation over the years with, with, with a wonderful piece of property. But this structure is not the church. I know many of you all learned that back in, back in Sunday school, but, but, you, but we tend to forget that. right? The church is the people. But it's not all the people, you see. You might say, well, that's not very nice. You see, it's the people who have been marked off By God, those who are regenerate, those who are born again, that's the church who have united together. This is the church, gathered together under the Lordship of Christ. We don't believe that we're the only church in town, the only one that has the gospel right. If you think that, then you're you're clearly got something wrong. (laughs) There there are many Christians here in in Avon Park. They, they, They choose to gather other places, you see. And, and, and they're under the same authority of Christ. But here, we're talking about us. And so when I think about suffering for the sake of the church, I'm talking about this congregation. What does it mean to suffer for this congregation? What does it mean to serve this congregation? That's what we want to think about this morning. So number one, Christians suffer for the sake of the church. Look at Paul's example here in verses 24 and 25. Paul exhorts us here that we must embrace suffering for Christ. To suffer for Christ, to suffer for the church, is one and the same thing, for this is his body. Notice the language he uses. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Having never met this congregation before, he endures and encourages them that he suffers for their sake. That his ministry is described here as one of suffering. 
Well, how is it that Paul, imprisoned because of the gospel, is suffering for them? How is it that Paul understands that what he's doing hundreds of miles away in Rome is somehow suffering for them? Well, in the mind of Paul, and rightly so, Paul here is describing a situation where he is drawing enemy of fire away from them. Because of the preoccupation with the Apostle Paul, the Roman government is leaving all these churches alone. They're focused on the leader. You see, when we read the Bible as Christians, we, we often read as if everyone assumes the same things. But from a Roman perspective, as, as the Roman Caesar would think about the Apostle Paul, they thought it ended with Paul. Kill Paul and kill Christianity. Kill the leaders, kill Peter, kill John, and it'll all be over. But what they didn't calculate and realize, that if you kill all the leaders off, it doesn't shrink the religion, it actually caused it to spread. In this way, the Apostle Paul is suffering for the church. He embraced suffering, though not merely for suffering's sake, but for the betterment of the church. In other words, he suffered for a purpose. This is how he ends this section if you look down at chapter 2 and verse 5. For though I am absent in body, and by the way, that's a veiled threat to the false teachers. He's like, I ain't there in body, but I'll, I'll surely be there if I need to be to whip up on you. Um, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So his suffering was so that they would see an example to follow. Paul here is a model of ministry and a minister of Christ. Paul here is modeling for Epaphras the kind of pastor he was to be to the people. He's modeling to the church in Colossae the kind of pastor and elders they were to appoint in their congregation. Ministers of suffering. Ministers who are willing to die for the sake of Christ, who are willing to sacrifice good paying jobs, good leadership positions in order to, to go and serve local congregations. He goes on then in the second half of verse 24 to say this, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Now, I'm not a scholar. And even the greatest scholarly minds in all the world have a hard time with this verse. So if you read that and you say, well, my goodness, what is Paul saying? How can the Apostle Paul so proudly say that he is filling up, that he is completing what is lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, what does Paul mean? Well, it doesn't mean atoning sacrifice. Nowhere in the New Testament does Paul or any of the other authors refer to Christ's death on the cross as affliction. So to be clear, Paul has already made certain that the atonement of Christ, his death on the cross, fully satisfied God's wrath. So he's not saying that his suffering is somehow adding to the atoning work of Christ. That is not at all. Paul clearly has a full understanding that atonement is accomplished in Christ alone. So what does he mean? Well, that Paul here is rejoicing in what his master has left him to suffer. In other words, as Christians, 
We are no closer to Jesus than when we suffer for Jesus. Because Jesus' ministry was a ministry of suffering. You understand that Jesus' entire ministry was one of affliction? He suffered. Philippians chapter 2 makes clear that he humbled himself. He, He left heaven to come and hang out with us. Like, that's suffering alone. He came and died for us. He was was rejected by men. New Testament author and scholar, or New Testament scholar, rather, Peter O'Brien, sees that Paul's reference here is to the messianic woes. In other words, because we are living in the end of redemptive history, there is birth pains, there is suffering and affliction. (laughs) Excuse me. Romans chapter 8 speaks about how the creation is groaning because of the affliction of the fall. And there's an invitation here that as Christians we groan and suffer and long for the second coming of Christ. It's a reminder, friend, that this world is not our home. If we were to grow comfort here in this life, then we would not long for another life. But our afflictions, our sufferings, our loss remind us that we are sojourners in a foreign land. This is not our home. We, we've not staked a flag here. We are simply marching together. We are pilgrims. This is the suffering that we endure, and we long to be with Christ, yet we are not fully with Christ. And so we must embrace suffering, but we also see here that we must endure suffering for the sake of Christ. We must not only see that suffering is part and parcel, but we must endure it. While each of us are called to suffer doesn't mean that we will equally embrace it. Many of us will suffer in different ways. Some visible, some invisible. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul had been given a task to suffer for the body of Christ, and this extends to all who follow Christ. It is a matter of stewardship that we are called to suffer for Christ. How do we suffer as Christians? How do we endure suffering? Friend, do you not understand in a very small way your suffering right now? You're, you're here today on this particular moment in time. You could be doing a whole host of other things. In an economic perspective, you're wasting valuable resources. God has given you the ability to work, or you have the power to work. You have the power to make money and Here you are. You you could be working right now, making money. You suffer economic loss, the loss of relationship. Following Christ causes us a loss of relationship, particularly we stand on the truth. Friendships and family members and difficulty. What the loss of time and energy. Friend, discipling another Christian is costly. Helping a fellow brother in Christ fight sin is costly. It's a spiritual battle that you're entering into. It takes time and energy to help a child follow Jesus. 
It takes time and energy to help a sister in Christ learn how to read their Bible and how to pray. It's costly. So often we think of suffering as some physical pain that someone inflicts us with. And yes, but friend, I mean, surely we don't suffer in that way. In Washington, D.C., a number of our government workers suffer affliction if they claim the name of Christ because they are called to participate in same-sex weddings or same-sex celebrations in the workplace. They're called to suffer whenever uh, same-sex partners have children and they have parties in the office place and if they don't participate in them, then they suffer the loss of promotion, even maybe even their job. Friend, this country is not becoming more and more Christian. It will not. This world is not warming up to Jesus. We are called to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, for his body. And as we take the blows of the enemy, do you understand, like the Apostle Paul, we take the blows off of others. We take the attention off of others. As Christians, we must embrace the privilege of suffering and endure for the sake of Christ. But we must also see, secondly, here in this passage, that we have a responsibility to serve for the health of the church. We have a responsibility to serve for the health of the church. Notice here in this passage, Paul uses the language of body. This is Paul's customary, uh, one of Paul's illustrations of the church is a body. And a body has various parts, various responsibilities. A body could be healthy or unhealthy. The word health comes from a a more ancient word that we don't use often anymore, which is sound. You know, many of you might remember a, a time when someone might say that someone is sound in mind, sound in body. Sound, meaning healthy, that their mind is healthy, their body is healthy. That it's being nourished properly. That, it, that it's not going to have a heart attack and fall over. That it's not going to die. It's, it's healthy. It's alive. It's vibrant. It's, there's blood flowing through it. And here Paul says that the church is a body. But notice in verse 24 that it is his body. That is, it's Christ's body. So to serve the church is to serve Jesus, you see. One can't say they serve Jesus and not serve the body, the church. You serve Jesus by serving the church. But you serve with a purpose, you see. The purpose is the health of the church. We all should care as members of this church that this church is healthy. Now, I know y'all think you're healthy physically, right? We have, we have a view of our personal health, right? We think, man, I'm real healthy. Until we go to the doctor and we discover we have high blood pressure, or we have diabetes, or you know, we, we, we've got some issues going on. We all think we're healthy. And so, so it's not our self-assessment of whether or not this church is healthy. It's not, you know, oh, I think we're healthy because we do this. But rather, what is the biblical definition of 
health. What does Jesus say is a healthy church? And that's what we want to think about here. So we want to serve well for the church to know something. In other words, a mark of a healthy church is a knowledge of something. But what knowledge of what? We just to have a lot of knowledge, really be really smart. What does he say there in verses 25 and 27? That is, a healthy church, a church that is healthy, is one who knows the mystery of Christ. Verse 25, of which I, Paul, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Then he goes on in verses 26 and 27 to define the Word of God. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, I had been given a job, I had been commissioned by Jesus to go out and make the Word of God fully known. His ministry was to communicate the full message of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that those who had not heard would fully understand and be transformed by it. To be very clear, the Apostle Paul's ministry was not merely disseminate information, but to transform lives. The responsibility of Christian evangelism isn't merely to tell the world facts about Jesus, but rather to share the gospel in such a way as to demand a response. Either I'm going to follow this Jesus or I am not. In other words, the goal of Christian ministry, the mark of a healthy church, is one that is being transformed by the Word. This is what he says when he says fully known, not partially known, that's halfway known. A number of years ago, I I got a little flack from a church member because we required every member who was to join our church to fully articulate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know the gospel, then how can you say you believe the gospel? Now, I don't mean you have a, a, a scholarly view, but if you don't have some basic understanding of the gospel, how can we say you know it? And so the Apostle Paul's ministry was to make the Word of God completely known, fully known, fully disclosed. And look at how he describes it in verses 26 and 27. The gospel is described as a mystery hidden but now revealed. Now, we don't have time to go into all the details of this verse, but here's the essence of it. Here's the takeaway. No one could figure it out. The gospel is mysterious. It isn't, doesn't mean that it, it is unknowable in that sense, but that it can only be known through revelation. No man came up with this. This is not man's invention, but this is God's revelation of himself to man. God here is revealing himself to make himself 
known. We ought to see then, as Christians, we have a responsibility to make the gospel known where it is not yet known. You, brother, you, sister, have that responsibility. You can't pay someone to do it. You can't pay an evangelist. You can't pay a missionary to do it. It is your responsibility to do it. To take the gospel where it is not yet known. But also to help others in this congregation know it yet more fully, you see. We do this through daily discipling relationships. Calling one another to follow Christ faithfully. The gospel applied to everyday life. But also we see here in this text that we serve well serve the church well when we call the church to grow in maturity. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul rounds out his call to service by calling on the church to serve alongside of him. Notice here in verse 28 how Paul has shifted from first person singular, I, to third person plural, we. Paul here just dramatically shifts to this third person to invite the congregation into ministry. The ministry of maturity was not the task for the minister alone. It is not Epaphras' job. It's not the elder's job. It's the member's job. And this is the ministry mind shift that you and I need to participate in. Understanding that ministry is done by the members of the church, not the ministers of the church. That the ministers of the church are the members of the church, you see. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, he says that Jesus has equipped his church with shepherd teachers, pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Pastors have a responsibility to equip the church for ministry. Unhealthy churches are a result of unhealthy ministers who do not equip members to do ministry. The problem lays at the feet of effective leadership and equipping people to do church rather than merely attend church. Each of us, pastor and member, have a responsibility to serve the body of Christ for the purpose of warning and teaching Every one of you have an individual responsibility, and we have a collective corporate responsibility to warn and to teach. Everyone in this room is a teacher, if you claim the name of Christ. The word here for warn everyone is that word, nuthetic. If you've ever heard of nuthetic counseling, nuthetic counseling means to admonish, to warn, to correct with Scripture. Though I'm not a proponent of the, the ministry of Nuthetic Counseling, the idea is that Scripture is used to admonish us to obedience. 
This was the normal practice in the Apostle Paul's ministry. As Paul said in Acts 20, verse 31, to the elders in Ephesus, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonishment. Warning. It should be normative in our congregation that our conversation is taken up with admonishment, with warning. We want to cultivate among us a a conversation that gives and receives godly criticism. You see, so many of us love giving out godly criticism. We're very terrible at receiving godly criticism. But we also equally want to give and receive godly encouragement. And again, this again is an area where we're often better at giving encouragement than receiving encouragement. But to admonish means to correct and to encourage. It's to say stop doing that and start doing this. But more importantly, it is to admonish, notice what he says in verse 28, with all wisdom. In other words, we don't warn with our own wisdom, but with the wisdom of the word. Paul continues here that they have not only a a responsibility to warn the saints, but also to teach the saints. We ought to be teaching one another the Word. We ought to be helping one another in our lives. Now you say, well, how is that happening? I guess that means we all need to just have a bunch of Sunday school classes where we can teach one another. Paul here does not envision someone sitting down with a three-ring binder helping someone become mature in Christ. How do your kids learn how to be mature human beings? Like, you know, not running around, climbing on tables when you go to a restaurant? How do they learn that? Well, they learn that by you disciplining them, by you teaching them, by you showing them, by modeling that, by living with them. You don't ship them off to the public schools to teach your kids. How, well, maybe that's what you do. Maybe that's the problem. And all the teachers said, Amen. We model it. We live together. We do life together. We cry together. We celebrate together. We get to know one another in order to leverage our relationships, in order to help one another follow Christ. That's how we do it. We're a body. A body gets together with one another. A body knows you know your body. We ought to know the body of Christ. We ought to get to know one another. We we ought to invite one another into our homes. We ought to invite one another out to meals. We want to stay late after church in order to build relationships with one another. Oh, such a beautiful side on Wednesday Wednesday night after Bible study. Everybody kind of hung around for like 30, 45 minutes just to hang out and talk to one another, share life with one another. That's what we want to try to cultivate because it's out of those times that comes coffees of confession where we confess our sins over, over a coffee table in someone's home or when we cry out in suffering because we don't know if we can make it till tomorrow because of the afflictions of our own souls. 
Brothers and sisters, we want to cultivate in our lives relationship so that we ought to so that we can warn and teach one another how to follow Christ. But here's the goal we want to we want to leave with. It's maturity. You see, the purpose isn't merely to tear down. It it is not merely to teach, to teach sake. It isn't to warn for warn's sake. But notice what he says. So that, verse 28, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our goal is Christian maturity. Our goal as individuals and as a congregation is to be more and more mature spiritually mature, spiritually minded, helping one another follow Christ. You see, it takes away the individuality of the the Christian life. It's not about you following Jesus alone. It's about us collectively together, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, grandparents and granddaughters, helping one another together follow King Jesus and all grow in maturity. But we don't do it alone. Notice verse 29. He leads us, leaves us with this. You might think, my goodness, this is a tough task. How are we ever going to be able to do this? How are we going to be able to grow? How are we going to be able to be mature? How are we going to get to teach a congregation this size? How can we do this? Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I love this verse. He says, man, I work harder than the rest of y'all, but it's not me that works. It's actually Jesus that works. You see, when we do ministry God's way, we are participating in God's work. And we do it by His power. We will never run out of the ability to do this. You see, when we're doing church Jesus' way, we will be Spirit-empowered. Fueled by the power of the Spirit. This is God's work. And who can stop it? As Christians, we are individual members of this local body. In our case, members of this congregation, First Baptist Church, that's who you are. Thus, we have a responsibility for the health of the church. Do you see this as your responsibility? Friend, let me just encourage you to wrestle with that truth. Own it as your own. It's your task to admonish and warn and teach Brothers and sisters, we have been given this task of serving Christ by sharing the gospel with those who do not know it. We have a responsibility to build this church for His glory. And we have the privilege of suffering for the sake of King Jesus and the responsibility to serve. We identify with Christ best when we suffer for His body. Identify with him in this way. And see, this is your responsibility to build the body of Christ for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of Christ, that we would grow to know you better. Help us also, we pray, to warn one another and to teach one another. May we do this with the great purpose of presenting everyone in this congregation. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. Yes, it will be a day of rejoicing. Yes, it will be wonderful. And we will stand before Jesus, complete, lacking in nothing. Let us pursue you with such hope. For your glory and our good in Christ's name, we pray. Amen.
Well, as our deacons uh, come forward for the Lord's Supper this morning, as we think about maturity in Christ and we think about growing in maturity, the Lord's Supper affords us the opportunity to reflect on this question, have I been following Jesus? It's been a month since we've partaken of the supper. Have you been following Jesus this last month? Was the month of May a mountain of spirituality in your life or a valley of sin? Have you been faithful to Jesus? The Lord's Supper affords you that opportunity of reflection. That's why Paul tells the church in Corinth, do not eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Take time to reflect. So as the plate is passed and we take the the bread and the body and the bread, the body and the cup, the blood of Christ, as we, as we think about that, reflect. Renew. Remember that Christ Jesus died for sinners, not for saints. He died that you might become holy. Who's welcome to the table this morning? Well, friend, we believe this is an ordinance of the church. We believe this is a Christian ordinance. And so if, you're, if you understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, that you believe the same gospel that was preached today, then you are welcome. If you are a baptized believer and a member of a local church, you don't have to be a member of our church, but we ask that you're a believer in Christ and baptized. And you're welcome to partake this morning. If you're not a Christian this morning, we just ask that as the, pa- the plate passes, you would pass it by. We won't think any less of you this morning if you let that plate go by you. God warns us to eat and drink of this in an unworthy manner, reaps judgment upon ourselves, and so we want to do so with fear and trembling. Before I go and and, uh, with these brothers to help pass out the elements, I want to lead us in a prayer. And After we pass out the elements, we'll read a passage of Scripture and take them together. But I want us to pray now and ask God to help us. Father, we come before you now. Remembering that Christ Jesus' body was broken because of our sin and rebellion. We loved our sin more than we loved you. But you loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus came and died. And his blood was shed for our sins, as your word says, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And Jesus died the death we deserved. And He was raised from the dead victoriously. And we now live in Him. And He now reigns victorious, the risen and ascended Lord who rules over this place. And so we eat and we drink anticipating the return of Christ Jesus, where we will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where what we do today is a foreshadow of what we will do that day. That is our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name we pray. Amen.